the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay. We have a very special guest on the show tonight, and we hope you stay tuned to listen to that. And we hope you're well and everything is going great in your life. And we just like to say thank you for supporting the show. Please spread the word. Please share it with your friends and review us and like us and subscribe wherever you see those buttons. Thank you very much. This week's guest is Mr. Tom Brislin. Tom Brislin has performed on tour and on recordings for several of the biggest names in classic rock, including Yes, Meatloaf and Debbie Harry of Blondie. In 2019, Tom joined the legendary Kansas as the group's keyboardist, backing vocalist. In 2020, Kansas released the album The Absence of Presence on the Inside Out Sony Music label. Tom contributed writing credits to seven of the nine tracks on the album. Prior to joining Kansas, Tom recorded and performed with The Sea Within. The progressive rock group features top musicians Rowena Stolt, Flower Kings, Jonas Rangold, Steve Hackett Band, Daniel Gildenlow, Pain of Salvation, Marco Minimum, Stephen Wilson, and Casey McPherson, Flying Colors. The group assembled in London in 2017 to record their debut album, which was released on June 22, 2018 on Sony Inside Out Music. Tom was the keyboardist for 2017 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees Yes on their 2001 Symphonic Tour. The tour was documented on the concert DVD Blu-ray Yes Symphonic Live. Tom's connection to Yes has led to collaborations on stage and in studio with several notable artists including Renaissance, Camel, Anderson Stoll, Francis Doonery and The Sin. Tom has toured as a pianist for multi-platinum selling legend Meatloaf and was featured on the album's videos, Storytellers and Couldn't Have Said It Better. He was touring keyboardist for legendary Blondie singer Debbie Harry in support of her solo album Nestle Evil and served as the group's musical director. He is also a frequent performer with fellow New Jersey native Glenn Burtnick, The Weakling Sticks, The Orchestra. Tom wrote, performed and produced the critically admired album Hurry Up and Smell the Roses in 2012. Released directly to fans through a successful crowdfunding campaign, the album features Tom's varied array of musical influences under the stylistic umbrella he calls cinematic pop. Prior to his solo work, Tom was the songwriter, musical director and producer of the band Spirally. The group released four albums, two EPs and toured the US in support of groups such as OK Go, They Might Be Giants and Violent Femmes. Welcome to the show, Tom. Welcome to the show, Mr. Tom Brislin. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. We were chatting over the last few months about getting you on. And I know, obviously, you're touring with Kansas and your tour is starting soon or it's already happening? It's already happening. The way Kansas tours is sort of an ongoing stream of, of shows. We, we go home regularly and we fly out and do a few shows, fly home, repeat. We were, we're off for the last couple of weeks, but we're kicking off again soon. Yeah, I think, are you playing in Kansas itself on the 18th of May? That's correct. Yes, Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah, because I looked at that date and I was like, Manhattan. And then I saw the K and I didn't realize there was a Manhattan in Kansas. I didn't know that either. <laughs> you were thinking, oh, a home gig. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and what is Manhattan, Kansas like compared to the real Manhattan? I'll let you know. You let <laughs> Okay. Well, I can imagine, though, you know, because Kansas are such a big band and they have a big following. So they must play pretty big stages and arenas still, no? We play predominantly in theaters, which is really nice right. venue for the show that we're doing, which is the Point of No Return 
live and beyond. So we're doing that entire album from beginning to end. And it's got a lot of the deep cuts and progressive aspects. So it, it's very theatrical. And so the, the theaters that we're doing, it seems just right for the type of show. Now in the summertime, we'll do festivals, we'll do outdoor uh, performances. And even we even hit some of the casinos and it's a bit more of a rockin' greatest hits set. So those are the two shows that I'm doing with the band right now. Okay. Have Kansas ever done like a Las Vegas residency in, in any of the years? Uh, not since I've been in the group, but we are hitting Vegas this year. But wow. just, a, just a one-off. Uh, but yeah, I, I do know some groups that have gone to Las Vegas and, and set up residency at a theater and, and sort of live there. I find that to be kind of interesting. Who knows? You, you never know. It might, it might be in our future for all I know. With some of the big artists have done it, Celine Dion and Adele, I think did it recently. And I'm not sure, there's other bands on my head done it, have done it, but it seems to be kind of um, a new kind of phenomena where the casinos are thinking, okay, let's get some of these classic artists or newer artists in for a run of a month or two months. And, you know, obviously it generates big books and brings a lot of people to the gambling tables, doesn't it? They uh, like to bring the people in. In fact, last year we played a casino on the East Coast of the U.S. called Mohegan Sun. And it was a we we were told that it was a so, somewhat private show. It wasn't the tickets weren't available to the general public. There was only by invitation to the uh, VIPs and high rollers. So we thought we would be playing in a small venue on the site of the casino but it turned out to be that we were playing in the arena it was where the basketball team plays uh and it was packed so i guess it was just like wow. sort of a appreciation for people who go there regularly but sometimes when you play shows like that people will come because it's a free ticket and they'll check out some songs and then they'll go gamble but this was not like that. We had everybody there from beginning to end having a great time. And it was like it, it was cool to experience the Kansas music in that setting because I have played arenas in the past with Meatloaf and with Yes. But with Kansas, like I was saying, we're, we're more in the theatrical side of things. But to, to, to let it loose in, in, a, in an arena was, was quite fun. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's yeah. And, you know, Kansas are a big band and big sound. And, you know, if you're in the right setting and the right theater, I can imagine it's so powerful, you know, for the fans to listen to all of that kind of music and all coming at you through amazing speakers. It's just such an experience for them, isn't it? I would think so. It's interesting because we on stage, we, we get a different read on it because we're using the earphones and it's very tight. Like we're, we're just, yeah. we're all locked into each other on stage, but they do have some microphones facing the audience that we can bring into our headphones so we can have some of that ambiance and some of, you know, get, get a feel for what it's like out there. And it's pretty formidable. So let's, we'll, we'll come back to Kansas in a moment. I want to go back a little. We'll go back in time a little. And one thing, one interesting fact I just realized when I was researching you is that our birthdays are very close because you're October 5th, 1973. And I'm October 2nd, 1973. So I'm three days older than Tom Brislin. <laughs> okay, I will ask you for your sage advice. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything I can teach you with my three days. Even <laughs> We're of similar age, but as I said, you're, you're experiencing far more than me. That's one up for you anyway. So tell me, early life in New Jersey, what was that like? Because New Jersey now probably has changed a lot from when you were born and grew up there, yes? Sure, of course. I mean, there, there's just so many more people here now, even though it was pretty packed as long as I could remember. 
And the main thing was that we had access to New York City. So even ever since I was a kid, my parents were taking me to the museums, to the shows and um, around Christmas time, things like that. So because there's a train that goes to Manhattan <laughs> right from my old hometown. And so there was it was really interesting because we saw, you know, I first went to New York City in the late 70s. I don't really remember much of it, but seeing how that place had changed by the time I was of age to go there by myself and start playing clubs with my band, uh, the city had taken on quite a different uh, feeling. It was it was still gritty, but it was definitely a bit more friendly to what we were doing, uh, just getting in there, playing the clubs and and uh, being part of that scene. And, and also, I think when I was a kid, it, it seemed like there was a real bustling music scene, a rock scene in New Jersey that my siblings who were older than me, they went to go see the bands and my brother played in groups and was part of that scene. And by the time I was old enough to start playing gigs on my own, the people, you know, Bon Jovi and, and all these bands from New Jersey that had made it had been established. And the the next upcoming scene was Seattle on the West Coast. So it was a bit different. Like it was almost like, hey, where'd everybody go? We're, we're here. We're ready to rock. And, and but there were still plenty of right. music fans left in the, in the state to come see us play. But it, it, it was a different vibe. It wasn't the record label feeding frenzy like it had been in the 80s. Uh, so, but I and 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 everybody I know who played in that scene loves to tell me about how great it was and how there were bands playing every night and and everybody was it's in the yes. clubs packed. Whereas by the time I came around, it, we had to do a bit more work. We had to we had to really hone our craft and 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 get people's attention and get them to want to see what we do. In a sense, or almost after it, I think you know it was like um, we just had to kind of build a new scene. You were on the tail end of it. One of the interesting things of, you know, coming out of the 90s into the 2000s, the region where you were from was becoming a little bit less uh, vital just because of the Internet. And now the the fan bases were connecting from all over the world. And and so we could if, if bands that were smart enough to seize on what the trends were with Internet and eventually social media it became more of a thing where, hey, we know that our fans are out there and we have to get our music out to as many people as we can using the internet. And that way we'd find our tribe there. And it was a little less geographically intensive, I guess you would say. Yes. And that happens because you can imagine, for example, even in Seattle, after Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, all those big bands, Mulhoney, um, Mulhoney, sorry. And then the thing is, with those, um, after for aspiring musicians and people who came later to the scene, it probably was a little bit of a struggle because you always get kind of labeled then as trying to copy these bands, even though you could have originated from the same scene. But once you come after it, it's harder to say you're original, isn't it? What neighborhood were you in New Jersey? Uh, well, I would say that it, some would call it the New York City suburbs. And also there was a college town near where I grew up called New Brunswick. And um, so we would build there. We would try to do shows there in the college town. And also we would we always had our sights set on New York City. New York, it's funny because obviously it's so close to New Jersey, but maybe for aspiring musicians, it's much harder because 
you're competing to get these gigs and you're competing to get uh, like maybe weekend residencies and things. And there's a lot of great bands in the city already. So when you're coming from New Jersey, you're making that 30, 40 minute trip in. But it's still hard work, I imagine, no? Everything about it was because, like you said, there was such a uh, a scene of great bands coming to the city or being from the city that we knew that we had to be at the top of our game. You know, we, we weren't going to be big fish in a small pond. We had to make some noise uh, in that grand scheme of things. And it was a lot of work, just like you say, getting there, getting into the city. And we, we didn't have a road crew or anything. We were carrying our own gear in and, and trying to find a parking spot and trying to make sure your car doesn't get towed away while you're loading your gear into the venue or, you know, that you doesn't get gear doesn't get stolen. And um, and so it, it was it exactly. really tested your metal <laughs> because um, the, the people who just wanted to play casually and have a little bit of fun with a band, they once they started seeing that that was what it entailed, a lot of people just stopped uh, working so hard. But the bands that really wanted it, like like us, and right. we, we we stuck it out and, and we learned how to make it work for us. But again, we were an indie band. We never had a, rec- a major record label deal. And this was Spiraling, was the group. And, and this was my songwriting. So I had that extra incentive because I knew it was my vision and it was the the stories that I wanted to tell and, and the band that we wanted to be. You know, obviously you're the youngest in five siblings, I think, and everybody in your family kind of was musically inclined in a certain way or played different instruments. So did you kind of have at one stage like a family band or that you would jam together in the house? I would jam with with various siblings. We didn't have a whole you know, partridge family thing going on. Yeah. But but you know, two of my sisters were my first piano teachers. My brother was the one who showed me what it was like to be in a band and we would jam whenever we could. Uh, my other sister had the great record collection. And so I was learning about music from her and my folks just loved it. And, and they, they liked to sing as well. My father used to sing in a band back long before I was born. And so it was just an environment where this, that's what was happening. But for me to get my first bands going, I had to find my friends at school. And, and I, we, I started trying since I was 10 years old. You know, we didn't have any equipment, so everyone would just come over to my house because I had the piano and somebody had an acoustic guitar or some pots and pans to bang on for drums. Um, and then like when I was about 12, 13 years old, I actually got really serious about it. And I've been on a trajectory since that time of forming bands, having a band, going to the next group, saving up for a keyboard, then saving up for an amplifier. You know, just it's funny because the gear was like one of the big hurdles to overcome because we were like, yeah, let's jam. Let's let's do a band. And then we're like, with what? (laughs) What are we going to use? And then, you know, we, we became gearheads and we're looking at all the magazines and, and sort of checking out what everybody was using. Yeah, you need the gear. Um, but I remember that was also one of the tests because we had to scrape our pennies together to get this stuff happening. And it was not cheap. Was it always piano for you or like at the beginning, you know, when you were getting those lessons from your sister and your I don't know who was playing what the rest of the siblings. But was there a time you thought, OK, will I try guitar, drums, piano? What, what kind of made you gravitate towards the piano? Was it the influence of your other siblings? 
to a point, yes. And also the fact that we had the piano in the house and it was right. like, that was the entertainment center. You know, there was much time spent around the piano as there was around the TV. And okay. if not more. And so I got started with piano lessons first. And, but I always, as soon as I discovered the rock albums, I knew that I wanted to write my own songs. So I was trying to, to write my own songs, write my own lyrics, draw album covers for songs that didn't exist yet. And I, I was always tapping my hands and stuff too. So I knew that there was a drummer in there as well. And vocals came a little bit later, but almost out of necessity. Like when I was a teenager, one of my bands, it was like, we could never find a singer. And so I did some of the vocals, but I really wanted to sort of just be the mad scientist with all the keyboards and do some harmonies. But becoming a lead vocalist was something that that emerged later. Um, and in high school, I was also doing a lot of drumming, like in the school band and 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 just jamming. I always wanted to get behind the drum set of whoever had one. And so I've always been like sort of a recreational but passionate drummer on the side. But it was and then. I've attempted guitar over the years. <laughs> so I always wanted to play guitar as well, but I, I never quite got the hang of it. Also because I'm left-handed with guitar and I was always flipping everybody's guitar upside down to play it. And so no one could really teach me because I was playing a, an, an inverted version of what they knew how to do. And later on in life, I, I, I acquired a couple left-handed guitars and have I consider myself an absolute novice for life. <laughs> guitar but i do love those instruments and i yeah, dabbled yeah. with woodwinds as a teenager but it always comes back to the piano that's the core and all the electronics and synthesizers and organ electric piano everything branched out from the piano for me it's funny isn't it because i do see sometimes the dream theater keyboardist jordan rudeness he actually now has become quite accomplished on the guitar and it seems like it was kind of a pet project of his but it's very interesting because when you come from a certain area where you play and then you go to another instrument, you kind of you can see sometimes those players have that like keyboard style on the guitar. If you know what I mean? And even like I saw you played with Marco Miniman and, and he is a good guitar player, too, isn't he? Yes, he's a, he's a good all around musician and songwriter. Yeah. When we worked together on The Sea Within, he was bringing in some of his writing as well. As, as his drumming yeah and i've seen him play guitar and really good yeah and it what's funny is that if i was to get enough ability on guitar to do it publicly <laughs> i would i would be doing something far different from what i do on the keyboards because i i know how to express myself with that language right, on right. this instrument well i wouldn't want to start from scratch just to express the same things i'd be playing rhythm guitar loud rock chords you know stuff that don't that that the keyboards don't bring yeah yeah i would just be chugging away i remember in one or two groups i played like midi synth guitar you know and uh it was it was kind of an eye-opener because for years i'd play guitar and i was teaching guitar and then we were trying to get a keyboard player for this band and i was playing lead guitar in the band and there was a rhythm guitar player and i had kind of been thinking oh maybe i'll try like you know you know, get a Roland MIDI synth guitar. And so I got it and we were learning like Queen songs and different songs. And then you realize, wow, hold on. This is like another skill, learning how to play keyboard parts on the guitar, you know? And uh, and then not only like where you're playing chords and 
you slide them down the fret, you can't have that sliding sound. So you have to move your fingers differently as well. And then, so that was one thing. And then the second thing was when I would set up for a gig, you would have to set up like a keyboard amp that was coming out of your MIDI um, synthesizer. And then you would also have the, the guitar amp. So I had two setups and you also had two possibilities for things to go wrong. So after I did it in two bands, I kind of thought, okay, I don't know if I want to do it anymore. It's a lot of learning and a lot of work. It, yeah, it's like, what is what is born of necessity? Where did you have, yes. was it something where you're like, I really, we really need these synth parts going on in the tune and we don't have a synth player. Let me, let me see if I can cover it here. Or do you bring it in a new direction and use the guitar synth as its own instrument? Something like, like what Pat Metheny or King Crimson did where they they created a whole new texture and a whole new sound and articulation uh which i i really like that i, I like when it also the, the technology of the time the way that it tracks the notes it was imperfect and that added a cool factor to it as well uh so sometimes you know we want the technology to serve us and to, to bring out what we have in our minds but sometimes the limitations of it just force some new things into the world that can be pretty cool. Yes. And what's your stance then on when you're playing with different bands, whether it be Kansas, yes, or, you know, the, the, especially more progressive bands where there's a lot of melody lines and, you know, your doubling of vocal lines and melody lines sometimes for some bands then who kind of double the guitar and doing guitar chords. So, I mean, there's been some amazing emulation software when it comes to keyboards and that can emulate and recreate guitar sounds. So was that something that you got into at an early stage as well, where you were like doing guitar songs on the keyboards? There are a couple instances or a few instances where that might be something that comes into play, but not, but not because I want to replace a guitarist in a band. That, that just doesn't really interest me. Uh, but if I want to get the, the vibe, the distortion, for instance, you know, I could still do that with organ sounds. Now there were a couple, have been a couple instances where I have used guitar emulations. One was on the Yes Symphonic Tour where we did Owner of a Lonely Heart and, and Steve Howe wasn't interested in playing that very wild eighties Trevor Rabin guitar solo. So he, I offered to play it on synth and then he was like, okay, yeah, that, that's that sounds acceptable to me, you know. So he 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 was on board as long as I covered it. And what's funny is that that some people even think that was a synth to begin with because it was so affected and so wild and harmonized. But I did have to get some of the growl and and some of the gnarly aspects of what the original guitar part were. Now, if you watch Yes Symphonic live and and you hear Owner of My Heart, like it doesn't sound exactly like a Trevor Ravy guitar solo, but it, it is the part and it is the, the spirit of it. So I had to, and that was with 2001 technology. So that was another hurdle to overcome because they hadn't made the advances in emulation that we have now. Nowadays, I use guitar emulation for my demos if I want to show the guys in Kansas a new song I'm working on, and sure, they they they'd be happy just to hear me play the ideas on a piano. But if I want to really convey what I'm hearing in my mind, I'll put on a, a guitar emulation patch and sort of approximate to them what I was thinking. That way, it's good enough that they can say, "Okay, I get it," and then they can play it on the real deal and their way. And that way, um, it would. It's really more of a of an imagination tool rather than 
trying to fool anyone or to take anybody's place. No, I understand. And this is the thing, isn't it? Because even though you have emulation software, whether it be MIDI synth for guitar or, you know, the guitar sounds on pianos, they are different instruments because, you know, the, the piano can be far more expressive in the fact you can be more melodic with both hands. I know there's a lot of amazing guitar players can do that too. But in general, you know, you have a lot of chords and then you have lead breaks and stuff. So what's really interesting, isn't it, is when you see keyboardists and how they approach playing guitar lines on those. And as you said there, some people aren't interested at all and other people kind of like that idea. And I saw recently there was, um, I cannot think of his name. I saw a guy, I think he's from Austria or somewhere, and he plays the Hammond organ, but he has like this tremolo arm on it. Have you ever seen this guy? Oh, I think maybe, are you referring to the clavinet? With the big with the with the big bar on it. Yeah, yeah there are a few yeah. there are a few players. I think I know who you're referring to. And also George Duke, I think, was one of the pioneers of that in the seventies. It was a modification. Right. Yeah, I played the clavinet. I saw this guy playing blues and like Jimi Hendrix stuff. And I mean, obviously with that like whammy arm, it's amazing. I after a while, it gets to be the same, though. That's the thing. But it's an amazing instrument. Well, for the, the people watching this who may not be familiar, the, the clavinet is a keyboard, but there are real strings inside of it. And each key presses down on, on a string, and there's a, there's a big pickup system in it, like a guitar. So you can actually make that instrument feed back like a guitar. And um, even though the articulation is that of the keyboard, that's one thing where it can get really wild and have the spirit of guitar, especially if they added this thing called the castle bar, which was the this curved piece of metal where you could like ramp down on it and it would bend the strings slightly so you could get to some of those guitar bends in it. Now, I've used a clavinet on the latest Kansas album and I've used it on my albums and I like to always set it up near an amplifier so it starts to howl. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> like guitar but again it's still it's still like front. in the family of of guitar types but I, i'm not trying to fool anyone to thinking that i'm a guitarist it's just it's just i'm trying to get like a little bit of a variation but it's got the beefiness of it and um i, I have a lot of fun playing that instrument it's quite interesting because obviously when you have i'm not a expert on pianos when you have a grand piano you have strings inside it so the clavinet has a similar system but obviously on a shorter scale and everything. So it's it's like a baby grand or something. But the strings are set up like, are they like set up like a guitar in that they're different scale lengths or one scale length? Well, it, it goes all the way back to the clavichord, which I think was a keyboard instrument that even predated the piano. So instead of okay. having the strings like on a grand piano, which if you're sitting at the piano, they'd be going away from you. Um, these strings are under the keyboard in a diagonal and they're much shorter, oh, but like, like a pedal steel guitar type thing. Yeah, in, in a way. And um, each key presses this sort of rubber plunger, hammers on to each of the strings. So there are 60 strings, one for each key, and they all need to be tuned. So the, on the times where I've right. performed with it, in fact, there are some things on YouTube with Spiraling. We used to play this Christmas benefit show every year where we played our version of Nut Rocker, which was Emerson Lake and Palmer's version of a 60s rock song based on the Nutcracker Suite. Yeah. And Keith Emerson used the clavinet on the original. So I was like, I want to start bringing my clavinet out. And it was only for that special occasion, because before the show, I was there with a flathead screwdriver tuning every string on the clavinet. If you don't mind me asking, how long, like, is it like 
a well-tuned guitar in the sense that it will stay in tune for the show or do you have to retune it midway through or like it depends how you play it well it's um it it it, it held on pretty well for me even though and i beat the thing <laughs> i beat the thing up but they weren't really designed to be road worthy um but I, I guess mine was in good working order and, and the, the tuning pegs stayed pretty solid for me. If I was to play another show, I would still touch it up in between. But I never I never found myself hearing a sour note during the show once I tuned it. Right, it, it, right. It, it stayed pretty stable for me. So when you go back to like when you really started getting into playing, you know, piano on the keyboard, you were listening, obviously, to lots of, you know, bands, Foreigner, Yes, Led Zeppelin, all these types of bands. And then the, the 80s pop from the UK and everything. So was there a point when you thought, I kind of like the progressive kind of fusion music? Was there a point when you just didn't want to play piano as backing, but you wanted it to be a voice of its own? Yeah, when I when I started in high school, I was starting to get hip to jazz. And in it's funny because the big band jazz of Count Basie and hot jazz Dixieland, that I was hearing that and getting into it, but I was also starting to discover instrumental fusion like Chick Corea and Herbie Hancock. And that was exciting too. And, and it's funny because that was also a gateway into the bebop and hard bop acoustic jazz but i just loved the synth soloing and 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 it had because a lot of those classic albums were recorded in the 70s it had a similar timbre to the the prog rock that i grew up liking the i heard the mini moog sounds and the hammond organs and the fender Rhodes piano so it had a lot of the same palette like if you listen to return to forever i mean that's right at home with progressive rock to me even though it's you know some would consider it in a, in a different subgenre but so so there was there was an appeal there for me and i just literally was just into so much of what was was coming out no matter what the genre was but as an instrumentalist that jazz stuff yeah as an instrumentalist the jazz and the fusion and and even the progressive rock that was something that i could sink my teeth into as a player and learn about the the harmonic and melodic vocabulary whereas the other stuff had the great you know if i listen to duran duran there's not a lot of chops going on but it's a lot of great sounds and orchestration and things that would lift the song up a lot of those 80s pop songs they had synth melody lines in certain places but there's a lot of pads and everything isn't there yeah and i love that anything that that elevates the listening experience and and brings the song to the place where it belongs here's a question obviously for people, when they start out playing piano in general, a lot of piano teachers, you know, give them songs. And rather than say, for example, here's an Elton John song and this is how the piano is played, they put the vocal line into it. So, you know, you'll always hear someone learning the piano and it'll have the vocal melody included. So that obviously is great as well. But there comes a point, I think, where a lot of piano players go, oh, that's not how the actual song goes. But in my songbook, you know, the vocal line is included with the piano line. So for some people who are playing these songs from sheet music and maybe never listening, there must come a realization, oh, I have to play less when I play it while somebody sings. Yeah, because like you said, those um, those song sheets that were called piano vocal or piano vocal guitar, those were meant to be marketable to as many people as possible. If you were a singer, you could buy that piece of sheet music. If you were a guitarist, you could and read the chord symbols. If you were a pianist, you could 
buy it and either back up a singer or uh, play the whole piece yourself and have it be recognizable. So it's interesting because a lot of times those pieces of sheet music would have three, well, it would have the grand staff for left and right hand of the piano, and then there would be a separate staff for just the vocal line. And depending on who the publisher was or what the song was or how easy or hard it would be, they would incorporate the melodic line into the piano part rather than just have the piano playing chords. But if you are knowledgeable about chord symbols and how to interpret them, then as a keyboard player, piano player, I could just play those chords if I was playing with a singer and I wouldn't have to play the literal melodic lines. Now, it's funny because there is a bit, there are some preconceived notions about that. And like some would say, well, if there's a singer, you shouldn't be playing the melodic line on the piano, like if you're with a band. However, there are so many examples in classic music where the piano player is playing right along with the with the vocal line, especially, and I discovered this when I worked with Meatloaf. Yeah, yeah, because Meatloaf, his songs are that type of style, aren't they? Yeah, because they come from the original versions with Jim Steinman when they were just playing as a duo, and Jim was hammering out the melodies to, to support what Meatloaf was doing, and they just left that in the final orchestrations, even if it was Roy Bitten playing piano, and there would be you know supplemental parts but when I when I worked with Meatloaf, I noticed that this was like, you know, some even called it like rehearsal style, but it was in the final versions. And all it did was make the melodies even more pronounced. And so I did I do a little bit of that in Kansas on some of the songs I wrote. I even saw somebody criticize me for it and say, you you shouldn't be playing the piano like okay. that. You shouldn't be playing the vocal melody. I was like, it's my song. I played it however I wanted to. And the, the band around me would, dug it. So therefore, what I did was the way it was supposed to be. <laughs> and it's like, I know what I'm doing. But there are other instances where, yeah, you want to carve that out, remove it, let the vocal just have that space themselves and play something else that supports it. it at the end of the day, it whatever works works whether or not you follow any arbitrary rules or guidelines i mean that's it isn't it and you'll always have those critics because like this they're looking at kansas back catalog and they're seeing you know the songs you're playing you'll always have these naysayers and you'll always have somebody and it doesn't matter who you are the bigger your profile rises and the more credit you get for doing a good job there's always somebody to try and knock you isn't there Sure. And, and I didn't lose any sleep over it. You know, you can you, you're never going to please everyone. So you might as well. Uh, I know it sounds like that old Ricky Nelson song, but, you know, you really have to stay true to how you want it to be and be honest about it. Because if you're just chasing what you think it's supposed to be, then you might not like how it came out. And then it's like you're not going to be as honest and passionate about expressing it. So, yeah, I mean, there's good. Everyone's there's so many cooks in the kitchen and, and, uh, but I think when, when it comes down to it, people have to listen with their ears and not with a set of instructions on what it's supposed to be. And, and as someone who I did the formal education route, I have a college degree in music and I teach, I've taught in colleges and, uh, taught private lessons and, and I've done, I've written a lot of instructional materials and, uh, have a book out of keyboard exercises and also uh, wrote many articles for keyboard magazine uh, over the last 20 years. And so 
I understand that there's this impulse to want to be correct and, and do it by the book. But to me, I always found music theory as, as two things, as a, a way to just communicate ideas to each other and also uh, potential solutions. Like if you're writing something and you want to get from one place to another musically, uh, there's, there's a toolkit in music theory that you can try. Whereas a lot of people think of it as like a keeping score sort of uh, thing where you have to uh, abide by certain structural or theory norms or, or rules, but that's not interesting to me and not necessary for me. I play, I play rock and roll music. There's no rules there. Yeah, no, and you have to be freer in that style as well. And the question I want to ask you as well, because I know from my background, I was a self-taught guitarist and I started later in life. I, I, start, I only started playing when I was 20. It was one of those things I always said to people, I used to be watching music videos and, you know, there'd be bands playing and I kind of started following Joe Satriani. I liked his kind of style of playing, but I only had two strings on, the, on this acoustic guitar. And basically, I was kind of playing linear. I would play up and down the string, scales and stuff like this. And then when I, I noticed that that was a style in itself, you know, and but then I put the rest of the strings on the guitar, uh, maybe a year later, I said, I'm going to actually learn this now. And I taught myself and then I progressed to, you know, met some friends, started busking and then you progressed to bands and so on. And like this was different because usually you do this when you're in your teens. But I was doing it in my 20s, you know, so I was a 10 year ahead and, you know, setting up bands in your 20s and everything. But it's amazing for me because, you know, when you're self-taught, then I didn't have that formal education in music, but I did the whole, you know, learning by ear, learning songs, sitting down. And then I started teaching and I still did a lot of stuff by ear. And then later on, I started learning more theory. You know, when you teach, you have to learn. And then as I, as I progress more, more into sheet music and everything. But the question I have for you is when you are going to play with any touring band or any musicians now, do you find that you tend to rely more on your ear or do you kind of say, I'm going to look at the sheet music? <laughs> I never get sheet music for any of these gigs. When I played with Meatloaf, yes, Camel, uh, Debbie Harry, uh, Kansas, you know, I, 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 no one has ever provided any sheet music because most of these groups have done it by ear and, you know, uh, Kansas. Exactly. And, Yes, those bands, they started off as garage bands um, and they figured it out. So that's what I had to do. So I've had to learn everything by ear. And so I always stress that that's a really important skill to have because it's it was probably one of the top skills necessary to do the gigs that I've done. And so uh, I know how to write this stuff down and to notate it and to transcribe it and, and, and reference it. And I know what all the nomenclature is of what the chords are. And, and I can make transcriptions or charts. And I have, uh, I notated every note, in fact. So I would have it as a sort of a tome, as a resource that I could go back to year after year if I needed to. And so it was incumbent on me. When, when you get to this level of, of gig, it's expected of you to figure it out. Now, there are exceptions. Like if you're playing with a big band like, or, or with pop singer like uh, my, Michael Bublé or something like that, now those are tight arrangements for a full big band. Yeah, you're gonna have, you're gonna get uh, charts and, and sheet music for that. And when I played with Renaissance, 
I was recreating orchestral parts from the original recording. And so they actually did provide me with the scores and the conductor reductions for a lot of their parts. So I, I did have a little bit of support in that regard, but it was still up to me to figure out how to orchestrate it down for two hands to play. Um, so it's, it's, it's not just cut and paste, you know, sit down and put a piece of sheet music in front of you and do the gig. There's, a, there's still a lot of legwork that involves the ear that has to be done. You can hear it in that kind of music because, as you said, a lot of this great progressive music was created, you know, on the fly and then people improvise and they write, you know, melodic lines over melodic lines that are already there. So a lot of the time, you know, you can see when the musician goes back to relearn their own songs or even new musicians come in. It kind of is faster even learning it by ear, I imagine, in that case. I know for me it is anyway, because I'm primarily an ear musician. So but I always kind of wonder when you have someone who's in the middle who does both, for them, the ear is probably the fastest way for touring musicians, I imagine, no? I think so. Uh, well, you know, it, you're, everyone's mileage may vary because it also has to do with the pure volume of material. Like if you have a ton of music to learn, then having written music is, is really does come in handy. But having, yeah, from, from full transcriptions to cheat sheets to charts, anything that, that can get you where you need to be. But if it's a tight set and you're, you, you're going to be doing that one set of 10 to 20 songs for a long time and, you know, learning it by ear really helps you internalize it, I think, the best. Because I found that gigs that I've had to do more reading on, I, I get kind of uh, dependent on it almost. I have, whereas when you, when you memorize things by ear, it, it becomes internalized, I think, for me. A little, a little bit more quickly. Let's have a look then. Obviously, with Spiraling, you know, you, you had four albums, two EPs, and you toured. And then with that, when, when that kind of finished up or went on hiatus or whatever, was it something then that you thought, okay, what am I going to do now? Will I look for work as a touring musician? Or were you approached to play with other artists? I've always had this sort of parallel track. Even when Spiraling was very active was when I got called for Meatloaf and for yes, which I did. And I was trying to find a way how to make all of it coexist. I'd go on the road with Meatloaf and then come back and do some recordings some touring with my band. And I had this life as a touring musician for hire going on at the same time as aspiring artist creating and producing my own work. And it was a bit of a juggling act. And to be, to be absolutely honest and clear, I never sought out the touring work. I liked getting the work, but once I, you know, one, one before Meatloaf, I was playing with Glenn Burtnick, who is a New Jersey uh, artist who I, I did some of uh, his gigs, you know, played the music the way he wanted to be from the albums. He plays with sticks, doesn't he, as well? And He did at the time, yeah. And this was for his solo work. And so that led to me getting an audition with Meatloaf. He referred me to Chasm Sultan, who was a songwriting partner of his and who was Meatloaf's musical director and bassist at the time, in the late 90s. And so I did that audition, got the gig, was Meatloaf's pianist for about three years. Yes, heard about me through that, asked me to, to audition, you know, via making my own recording of Close to the Edge and Gates of Delirium, two 20-minute songs. And from there, I got the Yes gig, and it was very clearly defined that I'd be doing the Yes Symphonic Tour in 2001, and then that's it. Fine with me. 
dream come true. That was the band I had the posters up on the wall when I was a kid. So, so it was like, all right, you know. That was like full cycle because, you know, these are bands that inspired you and then you're on stage with them and you're like, wow, it's crazy. Yeah, it was, just, it was almost like virtual reality. They get to play a game, like play with your favorite band. Uh, and uh, But it was quite real. And the Yes experience opened up the Pandora's box of all the progressive bands. It was from there that Camel heard of me, Renaissance, The Sin, and even all the way up to you know, working with Anderson Stolt and then the Sea Within and, and Kansas. Uh, you know, there is a, a lineage, but it really, yes, was like the gold standard for progressive rock. So when prog bands needed a keyboardist, my name would come up. And all along, I'm still trying to push spiraling. And then when spiraling uh, hung it up, I, what my, my first decision was to go do my solo album where I played most everything on the record, give or take a couple. Hurry up and smell the roses. Yeah, great album. Yeah, and and that was it. Well, thank you. And that, and that was uh, that was really one of my goals was to set up a house full of instruments and just write and record and see what happens. So that was a real bucket list item for me. And I had to stop putting making myself available for other tours. In fact, I had to leave my post at Renaissance to to go and do this. So I, I got that achieved and then it was like all right let, let's get back to to working and and sort of make myself available to these other gigs and um see within came along which was interesting because i was going to be a creative partner in that which all the groups i mentioned before that i was a side person i was playing parts that were there already the way they wanted them to be played and a lot of people in the prog rock scene didn't even know that i was a songwriter because Spiraling was not a progressive rock band per se. It was more of like a power pop meets synth rock sort of modern thing. Some people in the progressive scene, they just knew me as a touring keyboardist for Yes or Camel, etc. So I was really overjoyed that when, when finally came to Kansas asking me to join, they wanted me to be a real member of the band, writing with the group. Uh, they put trust in me creatively to be a real part of this ongoing story of, of this band. It's great, obviously, when you can be in demand. But like you said there, there's that point as well where you want to kind of do your own stuff. But, you know, in doing your own stuff, you have to build a following and then you have to also pay the bills and you have to work and get your name out there. But then one can override the other, isn't it? And sometimes it becomes this monster. And the more well-known you became, the more in demand you became. So you have to put possibly other albums on the back burner till you find that window of opportunity. Yeah, I could have put myself out there as a touring musician at large after the Yes experience and really try to make the most of that track. But I knew that it was important for me to have a vision and, and write songs something I've always loved to do. And spiraling was something that I was really trying to pursue for a long time. And I knew that I would be playing the what if game for years to come if I didn't take a shot with it. And we we went from, you know, I mean, I had some form of spiraling for 15 years, but, you know, we, we really gave it a, a good shot. And, and at our peak, we, we were a damn good band. I was really proud of what we were doing. Yeah, no, good band and great sound. And, you know, the thing is like that, isn't it? It's music is a hard industry and we kind of gravitate towards what we want to do. That's our ultimate dream. But then always, you know, 
you can get sidetracked, but not in a bad way, in a productive way, in a work way, in, in a way that, you know, gives you an income and gives you a career. But of course, it's like any person who has a dream for their band or their music to make it. You always want to keep pushing it. But I suppose the good thing is that the more freedom you get from having a musical career, you also then have the chance to do your own thing later on because maybe you have a bit more financial freedom. Maybe you have more, you know, um, how will I put it? Like, you know, networking, you know, more people. So it can help you out in your own career. Yes. It was a, a balancing act for sure. What happens is, you know, the, yeah, the grim realities of, of making a living and, and paying the bills, as you say, they're always there. And so it, it's easy to say, oh, I'm just going to put a, uh, my sideman work on hold and just do my band. Well, with what money? You know, how is the power going to stay on? And so I would I would come home from the Meatloaf tour and, and plug some of that cash into making a, an EP with Spiraling or come back from the Yes tour, throw some of those proceeds into making the album because spiraling it all all ended up the bills all came to me fine because that's that's the cost of having all the creative control is that you also got to pay i know that too well because when i started this podcast it was originally um, a thing from my band collective whisper and it's one of those things where i would sit at home write the music do all of the thing and, and you know people say oh it's kind of like egotistical but it's not i just kind of always sat down and I would get a guitar line or a vocal melody. And then I, I had this kind of composing kind of idea where I build on it. And I do, let's say, keyboard parts and, you know, different parts. And you build on it and the bass and everything. And then you're kind of realizing, OK, I don't need a band or other people to do this. But when you want to go and play it live, then obviously you need to get people. But because they don't have quite the same input or the connection with it, like you do as a composer, it's harder as well in these types of bands, isn't it? Yeah, because there has to be some sort of upside potential. And if a person is has that potential to uh, be in in a profitable group that they really like, that 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 could that led us to playing a lot of uh, shows in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night for no money because we were just trying, you know. So we were just trying to to get ourselves out there. But it's interesting because there there is this is a common item that's thought about by a lot of musicians they're saying should i just have a day job that's unrelated to music altogether pay the bills and then when i'm not doing that i'm pursuing my craft my art or should i get another job in music maybe playing weddings or or playing covers or something like that and it's a toss-up because that can also it, it, it's it's whatever you can do to keep your baby alive and to keep it thriving. Because I know some musicians that went into that transactional music route and they don't create anymore. They've made it the job. So it, it can be a trap. And you're saying, well, I'm still doing music. And it's like, well, are you doing the music you like? And th this is key because one of the things that happened to me in the mid 2000s when I was really pursuing spiraling and not making myself available for a lot of sideman work, still have to pay the bills. And so Keyboard Magazine comes along and they're like, hey, write some articles for us. Now, it was just a little bit of a side income to, it, I wasn't writing a lot for them, but I was writing something every month. And, but here was the thing, like I, you're talking about networking. I would meet people in the industry who just think of you as one thing. They thought, oh, you're a writer and that's it. You know, and I'm like, well, I'm a musician primarily. And I, I look, I played with some of these huge names 
demanding gigs and people like to think simply and they like to think of each person they know as one thing. And it's what you're doing right now, isn't it? It is. It's what, what are you doing now? What have you done for me lately? (laughs) (laughs) And, and so, uh, yeah. So in a way, I, I mean, I don't regret so much working with Keyboard Magazine. I met some great people along the way and, and I always enjoyed that magazine. It really helped me learn about what it, what it means to be a modern musician. But at the same time, it, it's people can fall into traps. And, but it is, I think at the, at the, bo- the bottom line is that you have to, if you really have something to say musically and you, you want to be that type of artist or that kind of musician, I think it's important just to make sure that that gets preserved. Even if you're working as an accountant during the day, as long as you're not too tired when you get home from work and you want to say something. I, I think it's like life is too short to to say, oh, I really wish. I, I think it's a struggle for a lot of people. And, and, you know, every year you get older, you know, and the more bills need to be paid and you family members and more people to support. You can kind of start putting your dream backwards in the line or on the back burner. And it is a struggle to keep it going, you know, to say, OK, I'm going to write those songs. I'm going to produce that music. I'm going to do it. Because if you're not getting the feedback or you're not getting the attention that maybe it deserves it's hard and then obviously the financial thing is a big thing because you know like people we always laugh in ireland because people say are you still at the music you know people say it to people all the time as if like oh isn't it really nice you tried it but it didn't work out and musicians are always going like ah but i'm still doing it don't count me out yet (laughs) Right. Because in a way, it's funny, you know, Bill Bruford once said about playing drums, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect of playing drums is something you really shouldn't do unless you can't live without it. (laughs) And, And I love that because I feel like that's music that's playing anything. It's like playing music professionally. Or, or that, you know, going for a career in music is something you really shouldn't do unless you can't live without it, because it's it's full of a lot of pain and a lot of things that can kill your love for this special yes, thing, yes. creating music. So I think it's like treat yourself with respect and don't let anyone else disrespect you and just be fair, be honest and, and, and create the music you want to create, how you want to do it. And it may or may not bring the financial rewards, but, you know, cover your bases <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know it, it's survive stay on the raft yeah and just make sure that you're not like just doing something that's kind of like what you want to do um yeah. do what you really want to do and but but be responsible <laughs> as well <laughs> of course i want to talk just in a minute about your the hurry up and smell the roses in a bit more detail but i want to ask you with the style of music with Kansas and with Yes, you know, they're similar in in a lot of ways in that prog rock. But playing with Debbie Harry and playing with Meatloaf, were those kind of very different styles? And or was it something that you found more challenging or unexpected challenges? I thought that they were very different at first when I when I was offered the chance to audition for Meatloaf. I I said, Meatloaf, I, I don't do that. And then when I was in it, I realized, oh, we're playing big bombastic rock with a lot of changes and movements and and drama and everything. There are a lot of similarities to what I grew up liking. 
and it's it was like very fun to play in that band and and very interesting to learn about how to work a huge crowd from meatloaf himself may you rest in peace yeah like because meatloaf is kind of dramatic musical rock i mean if somebody looked at meatloaf's back catalog and obviously bad out of hell and all these albums they're very dramatic and very musical and they look like they're written for broadway yeah and with debbie harry the similar thing like i was oh this is like a her solo work which was like very synth pop type of thing and i said i have some of that in my dna and i was it was like yeah there's 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 a lot of common threads in 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 certain in, in these things that on the surface seem like they're very different now i've i, I also like putting myself in unfamiliar situations is going back to the high school and college i mean I, I wanted to play anywhere with anybody and i mean i was playing uh, poetry slams with rappers backing them doing live loops like with a with a jazz combo like we were playing live pre as if we were samples so we were like repeating these four of our phrases these two bar things like for for rappers who and we had who were freestyling you know or i would play um some sort of acoustic uh music or and you know i went to india to teach and and was collaborating with a lot of the indian musicians just coming up with something uh, right right then and there that was hard to to describe yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that that whole dynamic. And I imagine then when, you know, after when you kind of going to play with Yes and then eventually on to Kansas. But for you, because, you know, you're an amazing musician, but there comes a point, I suppose, when you're playing with certain groups that you have an ability and you have a certain level you have to be at. But then when you go playing with prog rock groups, I know obviously you have a history with those types of groups too, but when you go back playing as a touring musician with prog rock groups and they're not your own songs, you kind of have to step it up a little bit, don't you? Yes, and the way I look at it is I put myself in the position of a member of the audience. Because people ask me, they're like, do you get to change the parts or do you have to play them exactly as they were originally intended? And I say, I want to recreate the parts as they were originally attended as a foundation, because those albums mean so much to so many people. It brings them back to their uh, their happiest days of listening to the, the tape or the album or whatever. And I don't want to mess with that. I want to be, you know, if they're coming to a Kansas concert now. There's certainly part of them that wants to feel the way they did when they listened to Point of No Return in 1978. So I like geeking out on the sounds and, and trying to emulate the, the original synth sounds, the original piano parts, the original organ tones and the parts and you and have that be the core. But, and this is important, I also want to, to, make sure that people know that they're at a concert and not just listening to an old recording. So yeah, so you got to pick your moments. And I do, I try to say, okay, these, these are some synth solos or some organ solos. I could take a left turn here and do something spontaneous. But if I'm playing the organ solo and carry on my wayward son, it's very quick and very iconic. So I'm going to do that the way it was. But when I did the close to the edge organ solo on yes, symphonic live, I played about 80, five eighty percent of it like what was written that that rick wakeman played when i say written i mean through composed again i had to learn it all by ear but i was like let me do let me throw in just a little bit of me like just just so like to put a little uh unique stamp on it so it's like i'm not just trying to cover something 
but this is its own unique thing. And you can listen to the yes, symphonic live and say, okay, there's just like a little bit of a, of a, of a flare there that, that deviates just enough in my view. It's quite interesting with yes. I actually recently, I think about two months ago, I just stumbled upon like a, a documentary on sky arts from the UK um, on yes. And, um, they were talking with Rick Wakeman and talking with the band. And, and, you know, Yes, obviously had so many changes in the band. And, you know, some people said they became a different band and everything. And even in the, obviously with Owner of a Lonely Heart, you know, the, the style was so different. So I can imagine when you're playing with Kansas and with Yes, there are some songs that are not like the style of the rest of the songs. So, for example, obviously with Kansas, Dust in the Wind, Carry On Wayward Son. But then there's so many other songs that have a very more, they have a far more progressive feel, whereas those ones are more commercial or more poppy. Yeah. And, and the solution is to start with the source and, and say, all right, if we're playing Dust in the Wind, what is what is the source of Dust in the Wind? It's, a, it's this beautiful, tender ballad. And, and when we play Dust in the Wind live, I play the cello part. That's my job. Um, and recreate that. And, and again, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. People want to hear Dust in the Wind the way they remember it. So okay. we play it that way. But at the end of the song, David Ragsdale, our violinist, he, instead of you know doing the fade out like the original recording, we play, you know, he plays this beautiful a little solo that was not on the original recording at the end, but it's it's appropriate. It's it's part of what what you're going to hear. And so and then but and if we're playing a song that's really deep prog from that area, we're going to we're going to go for it the way it was originally intended and look for our spots. And or if we play something from 80s Kansas, I'm using the 80s synth patches and and I'm just uh, I just look to the source as the inspiration. Obviously, with those types of bands, you need the sounds are really important. So one thing for me, I discovered when I was playing the MIDI synth guitar was, you know, trying to access these kind of patches and sounds. And, you know, it's it's quite difficult. And I'm sure it's the exact same for keyboard players. And there are certain sounds you go back to, like the pads and the synths. But for you nowadays in your touring, do you rely a lot more on using the sounds in your keyboards or do you use more software more than the keyboard sounds? Uh, everything, everything is available. So in my live rig, I have four keyboards on my riser. That's not including, we, we also have a little acoustic section where I play something else, but I have four keyboards. One of them is dedicated for piano. That's the Nord Grand. One of them is dedicated for organ, which is a Hammond organ. And I use a real Leslie speaker on stage to try to get that, that real, rich Hammond tone. And then I have two synthesizers. I have a Prophet Rev 2, uh, which is a modern synth, and the Minimoog Voyager, which was made in 2004, which is now a classic. It's funny because I still think of that as the new keyboard, right? That Moog made. Can I ask you a question with that Minimoog? I watched your video of Stepping Out with Joe Jackson. Did you play Minimoog on that video? I used the Moog Little Fatty. Oh, the Fatty. That one's different, yeah. Which, yeah, that was a little, you know, sort of a the next one that come out after the Voyager. So I use the sounds from all these keyboards, but I also have them all networked into the laptop where I, they can drive those sounds from the synth emulations. So, you know, the, the computer just becomes this very powerful tone module with all these other sounds available for me to play from any keyboard. And so I use 
something called Syntronic from IK Multimedia, which is a package of emulations of classic synth sounds. So I use some of that. And I do a little research to see what Kansas used in the 70s for it. And and I, I use that. And I also use it for some realistic sounds, too. If we want realistic strings or brass or orchestral sounds, the, the computer is a good workhorse for that. So it's a hybrid for me. There's very good emulation software like Kemper and these for and Line 6 and all these have some good software for emulating guitar sounds and, you know, being able to listen to a guitar tone and emulate it. So has that evolved in the same way for keyboards where a keyboard player can't find a particular patch, but he can go to a piece of software and it can emulate the sound? Is that possible? Yeah, the, more so than ever now. Yeah, there's they, they, they're getting really good at uh, recreating a lot of the nuances. There's still something about playing one of those classic synths in the flesh. That right, of is, course. It's really hard to put your finger on. It's those, those intangible qualities. Same same thing with guitar players and old amps or guitars. But what we call the modeling of the instruments has become more and more more and more detailed and more and more deep. And certainly uh, good enough that I, I'm playing some of these sounds and you know some of the original members of Kansas who are still in the band who that turn to me and say, I haven't heard that sound since the '70s, and it, it, it works. So, but ultimately. I do a lot, I do my own programming. I don't have a synth programmer on tour with me. I, I and I'm a bit of a historian and a geek of this stuff. So I love to really say okay, this was a clavinet. So I'm going to look for the best clavinet emulation and it's also about how you play it and how you go about it. So ultimately your fingers still have so much to do because it's the chord voicings, it's the way the melodic lines are played. It's not just what you buy. You really have to put some some knowledge and some study into it. Well, what I'm asking more is, I know you can, let's say, go to Syntronic and say, you know, AC's clavinet, AC synth and find those. But is there a particular software that you use where you can actually program the sound yourself without like getting a, a pre-existing patch? Is there a software that will emulate keyboards that you can that the user can use? Yeah, and even in Centronic, there are a lot of user editable parameters, and you can yeah. But there are, there are some, and, and there's this other company called Cherry Audio, which I use a lot of their synths now. And the the front panel on the screen is a complete recreation of like uh, a, a, an old Korg or an old Moog or an old uh, Prophet or something. And so you can build a sound from scratch with the same ingredients that you would if you were looking at the real thing right in front of you. So it's not just a, a snapshot of the sound or a sample of the sound, but it's actually, that's when, when you hear them talking about modeling, that to me is what it's all about. It's like, we're going to model all the characteristics, all the original functions. So if you want to start from zero and make, build the sound, just like they did in the seventies or the eighties, like you can do it. And sure, the purist in me is going to do the blind taste test and say, oh, I can still tell what the original is. But of course, of it's, course. It's solid, it's reliable, stays in tune. But I do like to keep some of the real analog stuff. That's why I have the Minimo on stage with me because we still use some of the sounds because there's just such a beefiness to those old analog instruments that. I like to keep in the mix. When you're using Syntronic and some of these uh, applications, are you do you run them all through like for example something like Mainstage or Gig Performer? Do you have like a master application that you put them in or you you use different applications together? I use Mainstage 
uh, on the Mac. So that's the that's the environment where all of these software instruments live and where I have all my keyboards mapped and my foot pedals that are mapped to tell main stage to go to the next sound whenever I hit the pedal. And that's something that I even did before main stage or laptops were even feasible. Where, where When I was with Yes and with Meatloaf, we had a hardware unit that was like a MIDI patcher and I had the foot pedal connected to it. So if I was playing some sounds, I hit the foot pedal, it sends the messages to all my instruments to go to the next appropriate sound. It's much easier to do now with the laptop, because back then you had to really know some hexadecimal computer programming to do it. And I was like, this is, this is not where I'm at. So now you can see it on the screen. Yeah, what's interesting is, uh, like when I was saying there, the problem I found when you start programming MIDI synths and, you know, MIDI guitars and everything, you just use so much time and you're like, oh, I have to learn the song too. And what I found was I was using this Axon MIDI synth and um, it was really cool because on the guitar neck, you could like in the same way you could split a keyboard, you know, like so you have strings, you know, clavinet and then piano. You could do the same. So on the first three frets, when you played guitar, the synth wouldn't work. You know, it, it was there. So it read the scale length of the string. But then when you go up to the seventh, eighth or whatever, let's say you're playing the E minor. Well, then that sound in that particular fret would be of the piano or whatever. But the problem is you have to sit down and program all of this out on the computer or on the hardware device. And you have maybe three or four songs in one sound. So that takes up a lot of time. So for you, I imagine programming sounds for meatloaf concerts and all this, it's very time consuming also. Yes. Now, uh, back in the Meatloaf and Yes days, I had a little bit of help with my my techs. Robbie Eagle was my tech on the Yes tour, and he he got in he got his hands dirty with the sounds too. And that was all hardware, so we were all twiddling the knobs up on the riser. Now with Kansas, it's all on me. And so what some people don't realize is that yeah, not only have I had to learn every single note, but I've made my own job a little tougher because I want to get the sounds right. Like I could. I could have done half of the effort on the sounds front and done and been acceptable, but I want to go above and beyond. And I, I really, I love the idea of like giving somebody the chills. They're going, I remember that sound. I, I want to transport people. And so it, it's fun for me to try to be as authentic as possible. And, and at the same time, like have it sound good. Sometimes you can get something that might be technically authentic, but it might not necessarily be very pleasing in the band context. So I just still want everything to sound rocking. And, uh, but I've had to, I've had double the job. It's not just the player, but I'm also the programmer. It's the sequencing and programming and everything. I'm going to ask my last technical question now. When you are playing and you are using those sounds, do you have like a backup Mac, for example, because any computer can crash? So if you're doing a big show like that, do you have another backup of computer open and ready? I should. <laughs> I should. And I've done that in the past where I've had a redundant setup ready to go. And my friend David Rosenthal, who plays with Billy Joel, is the master of this. He's got two Mac systems running in parallel. And if one goes down, he just clicks a switch and it goes to the B rig. I don't have that at the moment. I'm living a little bit dangerously, but I do have a backup plan and I've had to use it from time to time. So if my computer goes down, I still have the organ going and I still have the piano going and the mini mode going. So I still have the hardware available now. And if something from the hardware goes down, 
I got I got to just go to another synth. So if that happens, then the audience will be treated to a rare customized thing where I was playing a piano part on organ or playing a synth part on piano or something like that. It's it'll work in a pinch. It's it's not my preferred way. I'd love to just have a a, a B rig running at the same time silently. So if 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 I have to wave yeah, the white yeah. flag. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're dealing with machines and machines will fail. Of course, of course. Um, but it's it, it's a type of thing where it, it's on me right now to just have a have an escape route. <laughs> no, because I remember I was reading an interview with Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails, and he was talking about how, you know, for a lot of their concerts now, they use main stage for the guitars, for the keyboards, for everything. And he said, obviously, when you're so reliant on, you know, guitar sound, keyboard sounds all coming through patches and main stage, you have to have backups. So he said, you know, if there's three or four members using laptops and they're using, you know, guitars into main stage or, you know, uh, keyboards or whatever, they have, let's say, a secondary laptop that's ready to just switch over. So, yeah, I suppose it's sometimes look, you could never use it. But I'm sure in some cases the computer dies. It's bound to happen. And it's just the it's the trade off. It's the trade off. You get the you get all the sounds you could ever want at your fingertips. And also, like there have been occasions where we've had to fly very great distance to do a show. Like we went up to Alaska to perform and we we didn't have all of our own gear. We were using rental equipment, but I was able to just bring the laptop with me and connect the rental equipment to the laptop. So I still had some semblance of my real sound. So there are pros and cons. As with most things in life. Yes, so of course. But I just want to ask you then, obviously, with Hurry Up and Smell the Roses in 2012. So when you wrote that, you know, I, I know it's been kind of described as like cinematic pop and everything. And it, ha it has a lovely sound. I was actually listening to a lot of it today and it, it has a really nice sound. And it reminds me of other like other styles of music together and, and it's hard to what I like about it. It's hard to say what style it is. And for me, that's cool because you don't know. but I imagine when you do that, you take inspiration and influence from all the music you've, you know, grew up with, but all, even all the bands you've played with, like Meatloaf and, you know, Yes and Kansas and all that. So do you think, you know, for the next album you do like that, I'm sure you've tons of material written. Do you think that it will be of a similar vein or you have evolved differently? One of my goals with Hurry Up to Smell the Roses was to get back to an intimate sound because I had just finished my time with my rock band and it was all about getting the excitement and getting the power and, and getting people's attention because we were an opening band most of the time. We were a support act. So it was like we had to win them over right away. And one of the th central themes of Hurry Up and Smell the Roses is patience. That's why the, the, the name of the album is a contradiction because, and the title track deals with that. Is it do you relax and sit back and enjoy life? Or do you hustle and get the most out of life and don't yeah. waste any moment? You know, there's these conflicting messages that we get. And I wanted to encapsulate that musically too. And I also was like, let's do the ballads. I don't have to worry about rocking out. I don't have a band. So it, it went into this gentler sound for that album. And I just rode that wave because I knew that I had that ability to make the music breathe. I wasn't worried about trying to get to the point in 10 seconds or whatever. I wanted the music to unfold. And that was really the central concept in doing that album. 
now what I do is I, I always write without any sort of preconceived notion of what it's going to be. I just write first and sort it out later. So I've got a whole basket full of songs that are really appropriate for Kansas. I have those ballads coming still, and I have synth pop. I have stuff that sounds like spiraling. And my goal is to just create without worrying about it so I can get the creative flow going and get the most honest expression. And then I'm going to look back, look, look at all of it when it's all, I don't want to say done, but when it's like the songs are realized and that will kind of guide me to what's coming next. I, I assume that the next sort of solo album I do or, or a project that I lead would be more in a band sound again, because I'm getting back to wanting to work with with creative musicians and have that interplay. So it may take on a different quality than Hurry Up and Smell the Roses, but it's still going to be me. Um, but my my real priority is just continuing to create for Kansas. And we I've got so much music, especially after learning all that material for the tour, I was bound to start writing stuff in that language. And so that's why I was able to get a lot of my work on the last album, The Absence of Presence. Absence of Presence, good album too. Would it? Thank you. Yeah, and and so whatever I whatever I'm up to next, I I want to funnel it through Kansas and see see what we do next. I mean, really, post pandemic, we're trying to get our live touring back to where it was, and so that's really where the band's head is at. But I'm not stopping creating because we we may head back in the studio and um do some new music. We, we're actually recording a, a special new track now that I can't talk about, but. It, it, it'll be coming out sometime. A question for you. In researching you, and then I came across a show that, you know, a lot of people have watched is Supernatural and the, the connection with Supernatural and Kansas, Carry On Wayward Son. And then they the story, then they were trying to get Kansas to play the final show and everything. Because I know Jensen Ackles, they filmed Kansas. Was that during your time or was that before? We just filmed something uh, that aired on a sh TV show called Walker. Yeah, that Walker Texas yeah, Ranger, the, yeah, the new version starring Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles directed the episode, and it just so happened that we were in Austin, Texas, at a time when they were going to film an episode there, and we got together and did it because, like you said, they originally wanted to get us to perform on the finale of Supernatural, but because of COVID and lockdowns and everything, and getting to Canada where they were filming at the time, it, it wasn't going to happen. So they rewrote the episode without a, without us playing a part in it and filmed it in L.A. And so they all felt bad about it because they really wanted to get Kansas involved somehow. So now with this Walker experience and having Jared and Jensen be part of it, they they were like, let's make it let's make it happen. And so uh, that we filmed that back in February and it aired in April. Um, so, I, yes, I was involved with that. And it was really cool to be a part of it. And, and uh, it's fun. Doing TV is fun. I haven't watched that episode yet because I was only reading that today. But it was it something that you filmed in like in a theater without an audience or with an audience? Oh, it's with an audience. In fact, it was on the site of the place where we were to play that night our proper concert. So we just got there early. Everybody set up early. They brought all the cameras in and they, they brought a crowd in to, to watch us play and to scream and holler and, and get into it. Um, you know, people who were lucky enough to answer the call for extras that morning. What a great extra game. They just got to watch Kansas play for a while. And we, we played Wayward Son. We did it a few times as you do because they want to set up cameras in different positions. 
and have as many options as possible to pick the, the shots they want. So we, we played the song about man, three or four times and the, they were the crowd was going crazy wow. every time. And, and then it was like, OK, we're done. They they uh, did their thing and packed up and got all their cameras out of there. And then a few hours later, we were back on stage doing the real concert. You were back on stage. What a night. What a day and what a night. Yeah, I wouldn't mind doing that all the time, you know, filming a TV show or right? you know, because I, everything was set up and we're locked into the show. We were just ready to bang it out. That's like the best sound check ever, really, isn't it? <laughs> totally. Totally. Tom Brislin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Such a varied career. I mean, it's really interesting. And, you know, when I came across your profile and I was like, oh, wow, this Tom is playing with Kansas and everything. And with Kansas and these types of bands, you know, you see, obviously, you hear the music, but sometimes you don't always know who the touring musicians are. And it's nice to delve in and see who's currently playing with them. So best of luck with everything and continued success with your career. I know it's going to go onwards and upwards and good luck with the next album. We'll be looking out for it and best of luck with everything. And thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks again for having me. It's been great to talk to you and I hope to do it again sometime. Perfect. Tom Brislin, everybody. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Tom Brislin, current keyboardist with Kansas, that amazing band. And, you know, you have some of your own amazing music, Tom, and such a varied career as well. I mean, playing with Yes and playing with all these other bands, Debbie Harry, Meatloaf, so many other progressive rock bands, such an amazing career. So well done so far, and we look forward to hearing more continuing music from you and from Kansas and other groups like this. So thank you again, Tom Brislin. Okay, everybody, hope you enjoyed that episode. And we just like to say to you guys, thank you for being here and thank you for coming along as usual. And stay tuned. We have lots more guests coming up this season and we hope you will be with us all through. Look after yourself. Look after your family. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye bye. (laughs) 